Now, various organizations, political parties and economists say that the government has made a massive mistake by seeking the 70 billion rand COVID-19 emergency funding from the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. The IMF board yesterday approved the 70 billion rand support package to help South Africa weather the economic storm brought about by the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, the loan comes with an interest rate of around 1% and a much less stringent conditions than the IMF usually attaches to its financing. But the economic freedom fighters say they are convinced that this is a huge mistake. So let's find out why they are of this conviction. Uh, We're joined by the EFF's head of presidency, Sinao Tambo. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, Thanks, Sakina, and greetings to your viewers. Mr. Tambo, the EFF uh, has rejected this decision, so uh, please uh, tell us more about what the more salient reasons are for that. Well, firstly, we as the EFF regard uh, that uh, are of the view that no development can be achieved through a process of perpetual loans. So the first blunder that South African government makes is to think that there can be any development project that is sustained and built on getting South Africa into debt and sacrificing us into broader neoliberal markets. As for us, there's never a time or any evidence that can be shown that the IMF has ever given a loan that has been developmental to underdeveloped nations, that has ever given a loan that does not come with stringent conditionalities, either in the short term or the long term. So it would be very naive for us to start to believe that the loan from the IMF to a country which is in a deep recession, to a country that has been downgraded over every quarter of the, econ- of the economy over the past two years, why would the IMF give uh, a loan to a country that probably cannot be able to repay its debt? So it's a big blunder, it's a big mistake, and of course it's something that South Africa will realize at a later stage when our economic and political policies determined from without and in the interest of the nations outside of South Africa. So according to the EFF, what should the South African government have done? Because if you look at uh, this loan from the IMF at 1% uh, interest rate, it would seem like a good place to go if you need to borrow money. Well, firstly, there are, there are practical ways in which you know money can be sourced uh, at a domestic level, such as borrowing money from the Reserve Bank and, of course, domestic markets, uh, prioritizing money within uh, the country. So, for example, seeking to use surpluses within uh, insurance companies as well. So there's domestic uh, money within the country and the continent that can be explored. Instead of us seeking uh, loans which are dollar-denominated, and of course that's, that's where one of the biggest lies come from in terms of that this is a low-interest loan or this is a loan that won't cost South Africa that much money. The loan from the IMF is dollar-denominated and of course the exchange rate between the South African economy and the dollar uh, is uh, evident for all of us to see uh, in terms of the different levels at which it is. So it's going to cost South Africa a lot at a, at, a policy, at a policy level and, of course, in terms of being able to repair it. We're a country that's already drowning in debt, and there seems to be no coherent plan to already resolve the debt we're already drowning in, yet we keep on getting into uh, indebted situations with uh, what is uh, just basically a global loan shark. So the EFF is not in support of this loan as a method to provide aid. And, of course, we just see it as another method for the South African government to get resources which it can loot. So when you say that the money could have been accessed locally, why do you believe the the government would not do that? Why why would they go elsewhere if that money indeed is readily available locally? Because 
ANC policy historically from the 1996 class project up until here has never been development orientated. This is how the African government operates. So one example, I think one another reassurance we can have as to why uh, the IMF would not give stringent conditionalities on this loan is that South African government has already committed itself to neoliberal economic policy. So South African government has already committed itself to the privatization of SOEs. South African government has already committed itself to austerity measures as a means of developing the economy and creating jobs. So already we've seen the signs uh, with the economic plan that Peter Mbouini presented a, a year ago. We've seen the signs with uh, SOEs being restructured in order to be able to give much of the ownership to private companies. There's already a direction that is anti-development in terms of how our economy is being restructured since the assumption of Silvia Maposa into presidential office. When you talk about a neoliberal economic trajectory, what would you say the reconstruction and development project was about? So the reconstruction and development project of of the ANC, you mean? Yes. It was basically about, it's a misguided understanding of, of economic development. So instead of creating industry, instead of creating sovereign, uh, a sovereign economy through the industrialization, through creating of new industries and through expanding the economy into zones which are not developed, for example, in the northwest, in the eastern Cape and in the Popo, and rather uh, decentralizing our economy from Johannesburg and Cape Town. So the government seems to have an obsession with uh, austerity measures and, of course, taking out loans as a means of economic development. And this has not been proven to create jobs, even under the most prosperous economic period during Tabumbeki's time. At the time at which our economy was strongest, it was not centralized on developing South Africa and developing a South African economy which is sovereign, which creates jobs. But rather, it's an abstract, it's an abstractly strong economy. So the reconstruction and development plan of the ANC is also incoherent in application and of course, we can we can hear different theoretical reflections from the ANC at a, polit- at a political level, but there's no coherence with that in terms of governance and rolling out those policies. Rather, we seem to be beholden to Goldman Sachs, we seem to be beholden to Bidvest and Investec, an economic policy which is drafted uh, outside of the interests of job creation. But, 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 but why? And, and, and if I were to ask you to prove that we are indeed beholden to Goldman Sachs and in Investec, as you say, Where's the proof for the lay South African that this is indeed the case? Well, the the lay South African is not given access to such. But, I mean, for example, the economic development plan that Tito Mbouini released last year, which uh, basically outlined the privatization of sanitation in South Africa, the privatization of water distribution in South Africa, the privatization of railway projects, and the privatization of SOEs, was drafted and conceptualized and invested by Stephen Kotcher. That is something that Investec had spoken about prior to Timboweni even assuming office as a minister of finance. So we can see that the economic policy of the ANC is drafted within investment firms. And that is what, uh, and that is information that is publicly available that can be publicly sourced. It's information that the ESF has, of course, publicly condemned both at a legislative level and, of course, through the issuing of various communiques that Stephen Koshchev is at the center of drafting economic policy in this country uh, in collaboration with many uh, investment firms in which the political elite of this country have material interests in at the level of shares and at the level of relationships. And, of course, this, case, this is something that can be further expanded upon if, if there were to be any real uh, political interest and appetite in this country to investigate the court documents which have been sealed by Cyril Ramaphosa, uh, which reveal those who funded Germany's political campaign to the president of the ANC. Because those links can be drawn if there were to be an appetite to check how do those who, who, who hold political office today get those positions. And we'll be able to, to see a much deeper and inferior
uh, deep state and relationship well, between the political elite in this country and investment. Uh, the, 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 uh, the, the existence of the deep state has always, you know, been mooted, but it is, of course, not about what you know, but what you can prove. Uh, because mm. when you say that, for example, by your um, uh, assertion, Stephen Koshev is the one who is actually drafting uh, pol- um, economic policy in this country. Are you, uh, did he actually draft it? Can you show that to us? Or have uh, would they say that they've made an input as business, as investing, to the broader, the broader policy position that South Africa ultimately came up with? Well, even if we were to say, right, uh, which I would agree with you. That they, because they, you they have to prove, if you say that he drafted it, you have to prove that he drafted it. Definitely, definitely, definitely. I mean, the economic policy plan, which is currently guiding our economic trajectory, did have a, a substantial input from Investec. And of course, their input was not in isolation. But if we see uh, the entities which made an input, uh, particularly to that economic trajectory that we are on currently, now they are all of the same, uh, what one would call ideological persuasion. They have the same background. It's professors from Washington, uh, Stephen Koshev from Investec, did just had an input as yeah, well. Yeah, but would you so concede the, the, then, the, the, Mr. Tambo, that you cannot prove, yes. you cannot prove the assertion that you made? You cannot prove that they wrote. But if we look at the economic policy and we look at the input and who uh, constitutes the majority of those mixed inputs and their ideas for persuasion, how is that not a a correlation between how uh, investment firms and broader capital is in charge of economic policy in the country? It's not we weren't consulted as the ESF in terms of the economic political trajectory, uh, which uh, we are currently on. The Treasury and the Finance Ministry itself so uh, the, the alliance partners of the ANC as well condemned the economic trajectory that we were on, which was drafted by this broader capitalist bloc in terms of ideological persuasion. So I'm not sure why, why, how, how do we prove correlation between uh, economic uh, inputs that come from a certain bloc within society that seemingly have manifested themselves into reality today. And we must be able to make a... I think the that's simply the terms. point that I'm making, that, you know, he who proves, he who alleges must prove. But uh, let's come back to this IMF loan and, and, and just a final sure. question to you. The money sure has thing. now been approved, despite your unhappiness about that situation. So where to sure now thing. for the EFF? Well, we'll have to, at a very minimum level, because, you know, there's a, there are deep consequences for the looting of money that is sourced from the IMF as well in terms of just our, our investor confidence for the country and our ability to engage in trade relations with the broader, uh, the broader uh, society as well. So the next step for us will have to be to monitor that at the very least this corrupt state doesn't loot this money because that will have a much more adverse impact on us as a, as, a, as a South African society as well. We can't stop the loan from occurring. We're not in government, but we can, of course, continue to critique uh, the step that has been taken, and at the very least, we must be able to hold, account, hold uh, government accountable in terms of how they dispense these funds. Because uh, we, we are all aware that the money that is now currently being loaned out is going to be dispensed through patronage, it's going to be dispensed through corrupt means as well. So we don't be, it will have to be our responsibility to ensure that we hold those in charge of dispensing that money accountable so that we don't face the consequences of corrupt people who have taken a, a loan that has already put us in jeopardy. Thanks so much for your time. EFF Head of Presidency, Sinawa Tambo. And uh, we are joined now by Economist and Founding Director at the Center for Economic Development, Dumat Kubule. Thanks so much for your time this afternoon. Hi, Sakina. How are you? Thanks for the invite. Uh, uh, thank you for coming on. So, uh, Duma, we firstly, let me get your reaction to this loan uh, from the IMF. 
Okay, I think it's a sad day for South Africa because um, it's a slippery slope towards a complete loss of our monetary and, pol- and political sovereignty that um, thousands of South Africans fought for. Um, Andrew Mlangeli went to prison for the sovereignty as a country. And um, yes, so for me, it's a sad day. And it's, yeah, I just have to mention one thing that makes no sense in the IMF announcement. They say the loan is to address an urgent balance of payments need. South Africa has never had a healthier balance of payments position. We recorded um, recently the first current account surplus in 17 years. We have also got 900 billion rand in foreign exchange and gold reserves. So I did put this question to the IMF and I said, why would the IMF was set up to help countries that have got balance of payments crisis and South Africa is very far from having a balance of payments crisis. Uh, you know, I actually went to look at that in terms of our position a couple of years ago, and yeah, it actually proves what you are saying. So um, the, the answers are still outstanding there. But with regard to the loan that has now been approved, the 70 billion rand loan, the, the IMF uh, has different lending arrangements. So do we know what the arrangement is for this particular loan? Okay, there is no loan that doesn't have conditions. So at the minimum, we have to commit to explain to them how we will pay the loan, how we're going to grow the economy. So in terms of how we're going to, we've already committed in the supplementary budget that we're going to implement um, austerity and um, structural reforms. Now, those two are the playbook of the IMF and um, the World Bank. So it is music to their ears. So it didn't take long for them to agree to the loan because we have already committed, we are already in a self-imposed structural adjustment program. So this money, Dumakubule, uh, and, and I'm trying to wrap my head around it, the 70 billion rand, what exactly can it be used for? Is this okay. money strictly for COVID-19 uh, relief or can it be used for other projects? Because immediately... SAA comes to mind, uh, SABC, ESCOM, all the state-owned entities that need bailouts. So what exactly can this money be used for? Okay, I did talk to them, and then I put this question. I said, okay, so if it's for the balance of payments, what are we going to use the money for? The money lands in the central, in the Reserve Bank's office, and then are they going to use it to supplement their foreign exchange reserve, in which case we don't need more foreign exchange reserves? And they said, no, we can use it you can pass the money. The Treasury has an account at the central bank, and they can use it for whatever they want. Now, the money, Sakina, has already been accounted for. So none of the 70 billion rand will be used to to rebuild the, the damaged hospitals in the Eastern Cape. None of it will be used for the COVID response because in the emergency budget, the government said we are going to announce, they've announced a 36 billion rand increase in non-interest expenditure which will be followed by 250 billion rands of slash and burn cuts in government spending. So none of this money will, South Africans will not see any of this money. Let's just take health as an example. The government has already said we are going to increase the health budget in the midst of the biggest pandemic in a century by only 2.9 billion rands. So that is where the money is going. The, 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 money is, the money is not going to help South Africans in any way. Let me give you another way. Our budget deficit this year alone is um, more than 700 billion. So the loan is less than 10% 
of our budget deficit. And it also makes no sense to be borrowing domestic, I mean, foreign loans when the UIF has got a surplus of 100 billion rands. So we've got foreign exchange reserves of 900 billion rands, UIF surplus of 100 billion rands, after they've paid out uh, the COVID payments to the unemployed people, they will still have a surplus for 100 billion rands. So why then, and I asked this question of the EFF, uh, if, if that is so obvious, why isn't it obvious to government? Well, the best answer I got, because I've been puzzled about this, you know, I got from the economist Chris Marikani. You know, this is not about money. This is about... It's to politically prepare the country for a fully-fledged um, IMF structural adjustment program because they can't achieve, the people who are committed to this program, the National Treasury, they can't do that through normal democratic means like through the ANC, NEC, or through Parliament or whatever, you know, because it's going to be rejected. You saw when the DG went to Parliament, you got a big tongue lashing from the, the Committee on Finance. So it's messy to do it through democratic means. So rather lock the country into an IMF loan and the structural adjustment, and when you do X, Y, and Z, you say, no, we don't have a choice. We already agreed to the IMF. So um, that's, that's the only explanation, because South Africa has the domestic resources to, to, to finance the 70 billion rand, and there's so many different options. I mean, too many to even name, yeah. So over the years, uh, the IMF, uh, the Bretton Woods institutions, for that matter, have uh, become, you know, sort of a swear word. Like, we won't go there. We, we, we will never, you know, take money from them because we've seen what they've done admiring other countries in debt forever, you know, perpetually. So what has changed? Why are we now at that point? Okay, you've hit the nail on the head. So I did this article for a new friend recently, and I just documented their experience um, over the past four decades. So in emerging markets, we've had a crisis in Mexico in 1992, Mexico in 1984, sorry, 1982 in Mexico, Mexico 1994, East Asia 1997, Russia 1998, Brazil 1999, Argentina and Turkey more recently. So each of those uh, emerging market currency crisis has because of the loss of monetary sovereignty following the accumulation of foreign currency loans. And so what, so what I'm trying to say is that the IMF's track record in every single case, um, has, it has resulted in misery in the countries that it was involved with. And in, I can just start, like in, um, let me give you an example in Zambia. Um, Stephen Lewis, the former UN envoy for HIV AIDS, said the IMF's loan conditions had contributed towards the spread of the epidemic on the continent. He said the Ministry of Health can hire no more staff and fully 20% of municipal districts have no doctors and no nurses. The, fail has, the IMF has failed to grasp the demonic force of the human and economic carnage caused by HIV and AIDS. So during the AIDS epidemic in um, Zambia, they were forced to cut health expenditure. In Russia, after the fall of communism, they were asked to implement a shock therapy policy where they had to make a big bang transition to communism by the IMF and the international agencies. And it resulted in hyperinflation throughout the former, 15 former Soviet bloc countries and a 40% decline in Russia's gross domestic product. And in East Asia in 1997, Joseph Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize winner, was scathing about the IMF interventions in the, in, during that crisis because most of the countries, they didn't have a budget deficit problem, but they were told to tighten their belts. 
And there are so many examples. And the last thing I can talk about Greece recently, where the Greece, the Greek debt doubled after the IMF and the Troika and became involved in their country. It is just the, the, the case, as you say, there is a long list of countries, developed and recently developing countries, and developed countries that have been under the touches of the IMF, and it has ended in disaster. And the last thing that, that you know, you know, Sakina, when you go to the Mashonisa, the first loan always seems harmless. But in fact, there's a study that was done by this UCT academic, and it showed that every country that has gone to the IMF, um, 11 have gone on to rely on the IMF for 30 years. 32 have been borrowers for between 20 and 29 years, and 41 have been using the IMF aid for between 10 and 19 years. He says this shows how impossible it is for a country to win itself off an IMF program. So that's what I'm trying. It looks harmless right now. The 1%, that's what they want us to believe. It's the hook. It's going to get us addicted to this um, foreign currency debt. Do I- this is, of course, not the only loan that we have actually applied for and actually got, and I believe there may be more on the way. So how are we, as South Africa, going to service the, uh, these debts, given our current economic situation? You know, Sakina, you know the original World Bank loan of Medubi, I think it was done at an exchange rate of seven. Our, the ESCOM loan for Medubi, now the exchange rate is 17%. And so what people, when they tell you 1%, they don't mention that there's huge foreign currency risk that can cause chaos. South Africa, we've got the most volatile currency amongst all, one of the most volatile currencies in the world. So there's this foreign currency risk. It's called the original sin in finance of borrowing in foreign currency. Now, in South Africa, we've got the unique privilege amongst developing countries of having 90% of our sovereign debt denominated in local currency, and only 10% is denominated in foreign currencies. And I believe that I don't think that we should go to the New Development Bank or the African Development Bank as long as they're funding the loans in foreign currency, because foreign currency crises I mean, every crisis that we've seen in developing countries over the past four decades has been due to the accumulation of foreign currency loans. And also, Duma, during this lockdown period, you know, the president promised us transparency in everything that was going on, all the money being spent. But we haven't heard back from so many of uh, these institutions that were meant to take care of the 500 billion rand, for example. Where are we with that? How has it been spent? Are we able to account for that at this point? You know, at, at the late, at the recent um, central bank um, press conference, they, were, they asked the central bank governor, "What are the terms of this loan?" And he says, "No, I can't tell you. We're going to post it on our website after we've signed it." Now that is not transparency. And if you go on their website now and on the treasury's website. They don't tell you the exact conditions on the loan. They don't tell us as South Africans what they have committed to. And if I'm on the website now, I cannot see anything relating to the IMF loan. And in the Treasury one, they don't explain anything. Yeah. But, but you're right. Is that acceptable, Sorry? Is that acceptable? Why can't we know? No, because ultimately we are paying it. Yes, because a lot of these IMF agreements are done behind closed doors, and we should know as South Africans 
what are the terms, the T's and C's that we've agreed to? And um, quite frankly, I haven't seen it. The governor said he's going to post it on one of the government websites. He said you must read the IMF website. The IMF website doesn't say anything, and neither does the Treasury website or the Reserve Bank website here. Well, Duma, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Duma Kobule, who is an economist and founding director at the Center for Economic Development.